Chapter Three of Little Stories of Married Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Josh Kibbe. Little Stories of Married Life by Mary Stuart Cutting. The Strength of Ten. After plunging from the light and comfort of the heated train to the track, just below the little Gothic station of Braywood, John Atterbury had well nigh half a mile to walk before reaching his suburban residence. The way led in part across untilled fields from the enclosures of which bars had been removed to facilitate the passage of daily commuters. In the slant sunlight of a summer evening, with insects chirping in the dusty grass by the side of the worn footpath, and a fresh breeze from outlying meadows, scented with clover and milkweed, to fan the brow of the toiler, this walk served as a pleasant approach, in the company of conversational friends, to further country refreshment. The hammock on the veranda, the intimate society of rose-bushes, or a little pudding on the sward at the back of the house. But on a night in January, with the thermometer five degrees above zero, and a fierce wind blowing out of illimitable blackness, life in the suburbs demanded strenuous willpower. Men put their heads down and ran in silence, with overcoats tightly buttoned, and hands beating together, their footsteps sounding heavily on the frozen earth. The wind cut John Atterbury's strong lungs like a knife, and his feet seemed to stumble against the cold as if it had been a visible barrier. Moreover, he bore within him no lightness of spirit, but all the chill and fatigue of a hard day spent in business transactions that have come to nothing, added to the bitter knowledge of an immediate and pressing need for money in the common uses of life. He had a numbing sense of defeat, and worse than that, of inadequacy. If the man whom he was to meet tonight did not bring relief, he knew not where to turn. His tired brain revolved subconsciously futile plans for the morrow, while his one overmastering desire was to reach the light and warmth and rest of the cosy house that sheltered his young wife and three small children. With a sharp pang of disappointment, he perceived as he turned the corner that the front of the villa was in darkness except for a dim light in his wife's room, and as he opened the door with his latch-key no gush of hot air greeted him, but a stony coldness. He knocked against a go-cart in the square hall on his way to light the gas, and his wife's voice called down softly, "'Is that you, dear?' "'Yes. Are you ill?' "'No, only resting. Aren't you coming up?' "'In a moment.' He divested himself of his hat and coat, and stood absently trying to warm his hands at the frozen register, and then, with a long sigh, prepared to take up this end of the domestic burden with the patient use of habit. He went upstairs with a firm and even step, treading more lightly as he passed the nursery door where the baby was going to sleep under the charge of Katie, the nursemaid, and entered the room where his wife lay on the lounge in a crimson dressing-gown, a flowered coverlet thrown over her feet, her dark hair lying in rings on the white pillow, and her large dark eyes turned expectantly toward him. The comfort of the pretty, luxurious room, which gave no hint of this new poverty in its fittings, was eclipsed by the icy chill that was like an opaque atmosphere. The wind outside hurled itself at the house and shook the shutters. Atterbury turned up the gas and then sat down on the couch by his wife and kissed her. What's the matter? Nothing but that old pain. It will go over if I lie still. It was my only chance if we were to go out tonight. It's really better now. I promised Mrs. Harrington faithfully this afternoon that we'd come in spite of the weather. Do you mind? No. Is Harrington home yet? She expects him back this evening. Oh, Jack, Bridget was sent for this morning before the breakfast things were cleared away. She really didn't want to go off this time, but that mother of hers. The children were more troublesome than usual and had to be taken care of. They're all asleep now but the baby. I sent them off earlier than usual on account of the cold. Katie is no good around the house, and we've had such a day. The furnace. I see that it's out. Both fires were out, but the range is going now. The window's all wrong. We made up the furnace three times, but I couldn't remember how to turn the dampers. They never seemed to be the right way. 
There's a great fire in the nursery, though. The water hasn't frozen in the pipes, I hope. There was an ominous sound in his voice. She nodded speechlessly and looked at him, her eyes large with unshed tears. Why didn't you tell me? He rose for action. You should have sent for the plumber at once. There wasn't anyone to send, and it was so late when I found it out, he wouldn't have come until tomorrow anyway. There was a certain look in his wife's face at times which filled Atterbury with extreme tenderness. In the seven years of their wedded life, she had explained to him every varying grade of emotion which the sight of him caused her, but there were many things which he had never thought of telling her, or even consciously formulating to himself. He went over to the closet, poured out some cordial in a small glass, and brought it to her to drink, watching narrowly until a faint tinge of color relieved the bluish pallor around her mouth. Then he poured out another small glass for himself, and spread the down coverlet more closely over her, frustrating her evident desire to rise. "'You lie still.' He passed a heavy, affectionate hand over her forehead, and she rested her cheek against it with a passionate helplessness. "'What on earth did you want to do all the work for today? Why didn't you get the McCaffrey woman? You've no business to tire yourself out like this, Agnes. I don't see how you're ever going out this evening.' "'Oh, I can go. I'm so much better now. I thought—I know that we have so little money. I wanted to economize. Other women seem to do such things without any trouble at all. Well, we won't economize that way. Always get what help is necessary.' He spoke with the quick, matter-of-fact decision of a man used to affairs, temporarily regardless of the financial situation, whose cramping iron restrictions could be felt at every turn. I'll go down now and start things up. Your dinner is in the oven. I'll send a Katie to you as soon as Herbert is asleep. She can't leave him now, for he crawls over the crib and drops out. All right, don't you worry, I'll get it. He ran downstairs, arrayed for service, and Agnes listened to his receding footsteps, a warm comfort in her heart despite that racking of the bones, as of one smote-hippened thigh— which comes to the delicately born with unaccustomed kitchen work. After some moments, spent as she guiltily divined in searching for the coal shovel, the clatter and rattle of the furnace showed that a master hand had taken it in charge. Atterbury stoked and shoveled, with every quick sense suddenly concentrated on a deep and hidden care. If anything should happen to his wife—vague yet awful phrase—if anything should happen to his wife. She was not made for struggle. The doctor had told him that before. He knew none better— how brave, loving, yet sensitive a spirit was housed in that tender and fragile body, if she were to leave him and their little children. No mist came over his eyes at the phantasm, but a sobered keenness of vision gleamed there. There were certain things which it behooved a man to do. He walked over to the coal bins. They were nearly empty. Well, more coal must be ordered at once. He would himself speak about it to Murphy, and make arrangements to pay that last bill. Somehow. A catalogue of indebtedness unrolled itself before him, but he gazed at it steadily. The fog-like depression was gone. He felt in his veins the first tingling of that bitter wine of necessity which invigorates the strong spirit. And there was Harrington, at whose house the card-party was to be held tonight. He drew a long breath and his heart beat quicker. He had not told his wife how much he counted on seeing Harrington, but he was sure that she had divined it. Nothing else would have taken him out again on such a night. This wealthy and genial neighbor had held out great hopes of furthering one scheme of Atterbury's in that trip out west from which he had just returned. Atterbury had helped Harrington about his patent— and the latter professed himself eager to repay the service. If Harrington had used his influence, as he could use it, and had got the company to look at the land, why, it was as good as sold. Adderbury knew that it held the very qualities for which they were looking. If the plan were a success, then what had been started first as an attractive flyer might prove to be a main dependence when most needed. He felt a little bitterly that the friends on whom he had most counted had failed him. Calendar, Nichols, Waring, in their plans there was no room for him. This meeting with Harrington was the crucial point on which the future hung. When Atterbury went back to his wife, warmed with his work, she was standing before the mirror dressing. A faint, smoky smell rose from the register. 
The wind was still evidently in the wrong direction for chimneys. An infant's prattle, mixed with an occasional whimper, came from the nursery. I've wrapped hot cloths around the pipes, he said cheerfully, and left a couple of kerosene lamps lighted on the floor near them. We'll have to take our chances now. What's this envelope on the mantelpiece? His face fell. Another assessment from the association? That makes the eleventh this month, besides the regular insurance that was due on the first. But you can't pay it. She had looked bright when he came in, but now her lips quivered. Oh, I'll have to pay that. Don't you worry about it. I tell you, though, Agnes, I'd be worth a good deal more to you dead than I am now. Don't! You know I hate to hear you talk like that. I'd never take your old insurance money. She grasped him by her two slender, cold hands, and tried ineffectually to shake him while he smiled down at her, and then hid her head on his breast, raising it, however, to say, Did you eat your dinner? I hope that it wasn't burned. I ate. Some of it. Oh, she groaned. And on such a night. Never mind, I'm counting on a good hot little supper at Harrington's. And Agnes, having none of the care of the children, he had a habit of intervening at inopportune moments with well-meant suggestions. Just listen to that child. Don't you think he might go to sleep better if I brought him in here with us for a few moments? No, said his wife. She added afterward, sweetly in token of renewed amity. He's such a darling, and he looks more like you every day. He'll be asleep soon. But I'm sure Gwendolen will have the croup tonight the house has been so cold. Oh, of course, said Atterbury grimly. By some weird fatality, the festive hour abroad was almost inevitably followed by harrowing attendance on one or other of the infants in the long watches of the night. Husband and wife looked at each other and laughed, and then kissed in silence like two children in simple accord. It was with many instructions to Katie that the Atterburys finally left the house, instructions that comprehended the dampers, the babies, and the pipes. I don't suppose that she will remember a word that we have told her, said Agnes resignedly. Well, we are only going three doors away. I'll run back after a while and see. I'm so glad I'm going with you, she whispered as they walked the few steps, he trying to shield her from the violence of the wind. Ah, yes, he jibed. It's such a new thing, isn't it, to be with me? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. The Harrington's house was certainly a change from the one they had left. Delicious warmth radiated from it as the ample doors unclosed to let the guests in. The crimson-shaded lights were reflected on the card tables and the polished floor, and laughing voices greeted the newcomers. "'You are late,' said the hostess, who was considered handsome with heavy black eyebrows, dimples in her white rounded cheeks, and a petulant expression. She wore a bunch of violets in the belt of her light blue gown. "'You are late, but not so late as my husband. I expected him home to dinner, and he hasn't come yet. It's the way I'm always treated,' she pouted engagingly. "'You other men will have to be very, very nice to me.' She stared with public audacity into the eyes of the man nearest her, and then let her long black lashes sweep her cheek. It pleased her to pose as the attractive young married woman, and by tacit consent the suburban husbands were allowed by their wives to go through the motions of flirting with her. Atterbury settled down to the strain of waiting. The company was composed of couples who saw each other daily, the men on the trains, the women in their small social rounds. Every event that happened in their little circle was common property to be discussed by all. The evolution of Mrs. Oliver's black-spangled gown, the expensive house which the new doctor was erecting under the auspices of the Building Loan Association, Toddy Jenkins' stirring experiences in the kindergarten, and Mr. Waring's sudden substitution of the 731 morning train for the 814, were subjects interspersed with, and of the same caliber, as discussions on the presidential candidate, the last new book, or affairs in Africa. In spite of this pooling of interests, so to speak, the weekly gathering at the houses of different members always took on an aspect of novelty. Everyone dressed for the occasion, and there was usually a good game of cards, and a modest little supper afterwards, and the women met other men besides their husbands, and the men met each other and smoked after supper. The only real variety in the program was that the simple and hearty friendliness beneath all this was more apparent at some houses than at others. The Harringtons, somewhat new arrivals, were the confessedly rich people of the set, and the entertainments which they gave were characterized with a little more pomp and circumstance. 
Mrs. Harrington, for all her perfunctory bellship, was a lively and entertaining hostess. Everyone strove to make up to her for Harrington's absence, and a particularly cordial spirit prevailed. It was always a secret trial to Agnes not to play cards at the same table as her husband in the progressive game. But tonight she did not mind, for his steel-blue eyes met hers in a kind, remembering glance whenever she looked for it that spoke of a sweet and intimate companionship, with which outside events had nothing to do. In one of the intermissions of the game, Atterbury heard Henry Waring say to Nichols, did you see the little item in one of the evening papers about that western company to whom harrington sold his patent no what was it asked nichols they're going to start up the plant at once near some town in missouri i've forgotten the name paid fifty thousand for the ground you see they required peculiar natural facilities that's what's kept them back so long it seems a good deal of money to pay for a clay bank of course harrington's in a hurry to start them up he'll get a big royalty you are not to talk business said mrs harrington's gay voice Atterbury felt the room swirl around with him. He knew the name of the town well enough. He had been sure from the first that those barren acres of his held just what the company was looking for, but he had never dreamed of getting more than ten or fifteen thousand for them. A warm gratitude to Harrington filled him, and then a chill of doubt. The newspaper only chronicled a rumor, not a certainty, for no real sale could take place without his knowledge. He did not know how he played after this, and it was a tremendous relief when the players left the tables and stood or sat in little homelike groups, all talking and laughing at once in a merry tumult. There was in the air that fragrant aroma of newly made coffee, which is so peculiarly convivial in the suburbs, and the absence of Harrington, who was nevertheless considered to be a jolly good fellow, had ceased to be noticed by anyone but Atterbury, when the sound of wheels was heard grating on the driveway outside. He clutched the chair he stood by, although his face was impassive. The hour he had been waiting for was here. Harrington had come. Mrs. Harrington ran into the hall with an exclamation of pleasure as the door opened, letting in a flood of cold air and a large man heavily wrapped in fur. The listening company heard him say, "'What in time have you got this crowd here tonight for?' The words were respectable, but the tone cursed. There was a stiffening change in her voice. "'Hush! Didn't you get my letter?' "'What letter?' "'No. If I had, I wouldn't have been fool enough to come home for a quiet night's rest. I might have known I couldn't get it here. You can't live without a lot of people cackling around you.' "'Go to bed, then. Nobody wants to see you.' It was the quick thrust of a rapier. "'Much rest I get with that mob in there.' The woman flashed back at him with the white heat. You have your men's dinners and your wine parties, and you grudge me a little pleasure like this? It's like you. It's like, for very shame's sake, the guests were hurriedly taking to cover the sounds of strife. Harrington's trip evidently hasn't done him much good, said Nichols to Atterbury. I doubt his success. He has too many large schemes on hand. What he makes in one way he uses to float something else. It's possible, said Atterbury thoughtfully. It doesn't do to take things like that. If you lose your grip, you can't get on. That's what I'm finding out now. I don't mind telling you, Mr. Nichols, that I'm in a hole but you have no experience in that way. Your business is secure. The two men had drawn to one side and were talking in low and confidential tones. Is it? I tell you, Atterbury, the time I went through five years ago was awful, simply awful. No, I never said a word to a soul here. Nobody even suspected. There was one time when I thought I'd have to send Sue and the babies home to her father and lied out for the Klondike. But you didn't, said Atterbury, his own pulse sleeping to the courage of the other man with a sudden kinship. No, I didn't go. You can't be discouraged when you have a wife and children to support. Things turned out. It was most unexpected. I'll tell you all about it some day. It's well that the opportunities of life are not bounded by our knowledge of the Matterbury. They looked at each other in silence with a large assent. By the way, we are rather at a standstill at present, said Nichols after a pause. We've got to get someone to represent us in South Africa at once. Business possibilities are opening up there tremendously. You don't happen to know of the right person. Myself, said Atterbury. I wish it were possible, said Nichols politely, but of course that's out of the question. We must have someone who thoroughly understands the business and machines. One who can take the initiative. 
The fact is, either Callender or I ought to go, but we can't leave. We virtually need a third man in the firm, but he must have capital. Please come into the other room, all of you, said the hostess with a forced playfulness, pulling aside the porti res which had concealed the little feast. There was a heightened color in her face, and her eyes were hard. Mr. Harrington says that he is going to stay in here until we have finished, but I know you won't miss him. Oh, come along in, Harrington, said Nichols good-naturedly. Tell us of your travels in the wild and woolly west. There's nothing to tell, said Harrington shortly, turning away from the instinctive question in Atterbury's look with almost brutal rudeness, and pushing past him to an armchair, where he sat down and closed his eyes wearily. He was a big man, with thick, black hair and a black mustache, which dropped over a heavy chin. I have passed the nights in beastly sleeping cars, and the days in dining and whining a lot of low, greasy politicians. I'm dog-tired. There were deep lines in his low forehead and under his eyes, and his large, white, powerful hand clasped and unclasped nervously. You go in there, both of you. I'm all broke up. My wife will entertain you. Her damn chatter drives me mad. I'll stay here with you, said Atterbury resolutely. I will send your supper in to you, called Mrs. Harrington lightly, as she saw him drop a chair to one of the deserted card tables near which Harrington was sitting with his eyes still closed and his head leaned back against the cushions. He paid no attention to the dishes, but Atterbury ate and drank quickly, like the hungry man he was, though hardly knowing what he tasted except that it was warm and good. Then he sat absently looking at the scene in the supper room where the guests were grouped around the table, the wax lights in the candelabra illuminating the women opposite him. Mrs. Harrington's brilliant eyes and blue gown, the fair hair and scarlet draperies of pretty Mrs. Waring, the white teeth and a charming smile of black-robed Mrs. Callender, and the old rose bot and the old rose bodice, slender neck, and a dusky, drooping head that belonged to Agnes. In spite of the festive appearance, there was manifest chill and restraint. The men, all but Callender and Nichols, who talked apart, had shifted over to seats by their wives, a position which does not require due exertion in the matter of entertainment. It is difficult to eat and drink merrily when your host is palpably waiting for your departure. Agnes's hand shook as she held the cup of hot coffee to which she had been looking forward, and her creamed oysters were untouched while she tried to open a conversation with Mrs. Callender all about the book club. "'Well,' said Atterbury suddenly after a while, "'what have you got to say to me, Harrington? The other man's manner was offensive, but Atterbury was disposed to be conciliating. Harrington enclosed his heavy, dark-ringed eyes and gazed at him. "'What have I got to say to you?' he gave a short laugh. "'Why, nothing that I know of, nothing but that I have an internal headache. There was an extraordinary undercurrent of insolence in his manner, which Atterbury was at a loss to explain. "'I am sorry to have to disturb you if you are ill,' said Atterbury in level tones. "'But a word will suffice, Harrington. I know that the land is virtually sold. It was in the evening paper. How much does it bring? What land? My land. I don't know anything about your property. The ground that the company bought belonged to me. To you. You never told me that you owned any in Missouri. Do I have to tell you everything?' Harrington's black eyes were contemptuously defiant. "'No, but you will have to tell me this,' said Atterbury. Harrington shifted uneasily. "'Well, then take the truth if you want it. I meant to keep faith with you fairly enough, and I would have stuck to your interests if I could have afforded to. That's the whole gist of the matter, and you've no case for complaint. We hadn't signed any agreement.' "'You found another section like mine?' Harrington nodded. "'Nearly as good. I bought it for a song, and the company sent out a surveyor and a couple of geologists of their own to look it up, and paid me fifty thousand for it. That is, indirectly, of course.' I didn't appear in the sale and buy. I lost every cent in a deal yesterday. He swore under his breath. You used the private information I gave you, I suppose? Said Atterbury in dangerously low tones. A flicker of a smile crossed Harrington's moody face. Well, yes. You gave me the points and I used them. Any man would. You miserable. Sneaking. Liar, said Atterbury very slowly. He rose and brought both hands down on the table with a gesture that did not lose in power because it made no sound. 
No man that lives shall cheat me with impunity. I'll brand you for what you are. You can't, said Harrington insolently. Atterbury smiled with a scorn which disdained reply and turned on his heel. He did not see the startled glance of Nichols and Callender as he went over to a place beside them. His wife wondered, as they did, at a new royalty in his tall bearing, as of one used to high command, and bowed herself in adoration before it. He defeated, he cast down. In that moment of tingling indignation he felt himself a conqueror. Nor obstacle, nor loss, nor circumstance, nor treachery should stand in his way. This blow had felled the last barrier that confined a free spirit, superbly at one with the elemental force which displaces atoms and creates new worlds. The current of a mighty strength was in him, dominant, compelling, that strength which in some mysterious way has a volition of its own, apart from him who possesses it, bending man and events to his uses. There was a vibrant tone in his voice as he said, Mr. Nichols, I want to go to South Africa for you. The gaze of the two men met with almost an electric shock. But you don't know the business. The protest half-invited discussion. I can learn it. We don't want a man to learn, said Callender, speaking for the first time. You must understand that, Atterbury. We can find men on every street corner who would like to learn. We want someone with a good working knowledge, who has had experience, and is familiar with our machines and our methods, one who can leave his family, and his capital. Atterbury shook his head. No! You want a man like me, one who can not only handle your machines, but handle men, and has had experience outside of your narrow line. Good heavens, Calendar, the man you speak of, barring the capital, can almost be picked up at the street corners. Your house is full of such as he. Good, plotting, trustworthy men, who understand what they have been taught about your machines and your accounts and your methods, and who understand nothing else, who stick to their desks year in and year out. Will one like that do for you? You know that it will not. Granted that I don't know the business as you do, that's but a detail. I know what business really is. Granted that I've got no capital, I've got the one thing you really need, and that's the brains and energy to get it for you. Take me into your conferences. Give me a fighting knowledge of what you want, and I'll bring in the capital. The export trade has a tremendous future. My mind's been full of it lately. You send me to South Africa, to China, to the Philippines, and I'll undertake to double the business in three years. But you mustn't confine yourself to one narrow line. You must broaden out. You ought to be able to distance all your competitors. You ought to be able to merge them in your own company. For many reasons, I can be worth more to you than any other man you know. Great Scott, Nichols, can't you see that I'm the opportunity you want? Nichols sat immovable, holding on to the arms of his chair with both hands. Facing the light of Atterbury's face, the answering light shone in his own. Callender still objected, although plainly under great excitement. You haven't managed your own affairs so well. No, said Atterbury, turning on him like lightning, and you know why. You know just what claims the death of Anderson laid upon me, and how I've tried to carry them. They'll be paid off now. Callender, you're not worth my powder and shot. You're just talking. Mr. Nichols, I'm speaking to you. You know I can handle this thing. Both men rose unconsciously and looked at each other with a long breath between them. When will you send me out? asked Atterbury at last with his brilliant smile. Come to me tomorrow at ten, said Nichols, giving his hand to the other, who grasped it silently. Mind, I don't promise anything. No, we don't promise anything, agreed the excited calendar. No, said Atterbury jubilantly. That's all right. We've got a great future before us, my friends. As he wheeled around, he caught sight of Harrington, whom he had momentarily forgotten. Ah, he said airily, do either of you own any stock in our host's company? It may be just as well for you to investigate a little. You may find that as the treasurer he's been speculating with the funds. I'll give you my reasons for this also. Tomorrow. Come, he said to Agnes, we must be going. As they stepped out once more into the darkness, the wind nearly hurled them off their feet. A million icy points of snow pricked and stung the face. She clung to him, and he put his arm around her and swept her through the storm as a lover might his bride, unknowing of it. Yet for all that warm clasp, she subtly felt the severance of his thought from her, 
and when they were safely landed in the hall she said nervously, "'What was that I heard you saying to Mr. Nichols? You're not going to leave me?' Her tone had in it the universal protest of womankind, to whom the bodily desertion is less than the spiritual one that makes it possible. He bent his ardent eyes upon her with a glow which she had never seen in them even in the earliest days of their love. "'Ah, but it will be only to come back to you,' he said with a leap forward to a joy that made parting dim, and she looked up at him with a soul so steeped in love that for the moment she could only desire what he did. The evidences of a clinging domesticity were again around them. Fierce blasts of heat from the furnace showed that Katie had peacefully forgotten the dampers. The water dripped, dripped into the kitchen sink from the thawing pipes. A hollow clanging cough from the upper regions told that poor little Gwendolen's post-festive croup had indeed set in, but even this no longer appeared a bitter and blasting ill to Atterbury, but merely a temporary discomfort to be gone with the morrow. End of chapter 3